We continue our series of, of foundations series. We are talking about um, salvation, soteriology, the doctrine of uh, salvation. And this is our last part of our series. And we're going to look at 10 different categories under the idea of salvation. We saw the Bible uses the word salvation to talk about all kinds of different things. So we want to be a little more specific and categorizing those things. Um, we have called this the order of salvation or, or the order salutis, if you see that in some uh, theological texts there. And the point the Bible makes is that God alone saves, and he saves through the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, if you don't get anything else, get this. God alone saves, and he saves through the proclamation of the gospel. And his salvation starts with the new birth and concludes with our glorification. And uh, these are the ten things that we're going to be looking at. We're going to look at the first two, effectual calling and regeneration. Lord willing, today we're going to look at repentance unto life and um, faith in Jesus Christ. So that's where we're going. Um, this list is on our blog at olympiabp.net. You can, you can go there and see that as well. And as we go there, uh, as we continue here, let's just... Uh, the brief review of what we've learned so far with effectual calling and regeneration. We saw that in giving a person the new birth, God changes his or her nature and enables that person to believe in the gospel. That's what regeneration is. Just a, a Latin-based word that means to be born again. It's an initi initiative of, of God. It happens in the person. It is by the means of the preaching of the gospel that one is born again. But the person being born again is completely passive. Uh, there's nothing that he or she does before being born again, other than being dead, that contributes to that happening. And when, so when God begins that work of regeneration, man is completely passive in that. We saw that in several scriptures in John 6, 37. All the fathers gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. See, the father initiates. The father gives to the son in, in, later on in the same chapter. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. So there's this, uh, the father first drawing the person to Jesus. Uh, that's clearly taught in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we could go through all the way through verse 10, but through verse 6, where... Paul clearly says this person was dead, and by God's grace they are now alive, all done by God, while the person is passive, like a dead person would be. Uh, dead people don't do much, um, you know, notwithstanding all the uh, zombie movies. Uh, dead people don't do much, they don't contribute to anything. Uh, that's the picture that Paul is painting here in Ephesians chapter 2. And we saw that regeneration accomplishes three things. It accomplishes the enlightening of the mind. Uh, Paul says that much in, in Acts 20. Well, Jesus says that to Paul in uh, Acts 26, 18, where uh, Jesus says that the ministry of Paul is going to be the proclamation of the gospel. So that's through that, God opens the eyes of the people, the enlightening of the mind, the, uh, makes the mind able to understand the gospel. Uh, regeneration also accomplishes the renewing and purifying of the nature of the heart. That's the core promise of the new covenant, uh, that uh, God is going to give us a new heart. 
And notice that it's not that we're going to take it, it's God's going to give it. And then that results in a new will. Um, that's again another promise of a new covenant where now that we have a new heart, a heart of flesh, we're able to do the law of God. And uh, <clears throat> perhaps saying that results in a new will is not accurate because the will doesn't change. The will, it, the will is fine. The will does everything, our will does everything it's supposed to do. The problem is that it's attached to our nature. And we have a sinful, when we have a sinful nature prior to regeneration, the will is only going to do what the sinful nature pushes it to do. But now that we have a new heart, if we have been born again of God, that we are able to do what God calls us to do. The will works just fine. Any questions before I continue? Andrew. Is our ongoing struggle with sin then rooted in the nature or the will? Nature. We don't have, our will does not have a problem. Uh, you know, uh, the will is only in, attached to our nature. It's free from any other influence. Only, the only thing that drives it are, is our nature. And even the struggle with sin is not necessarily the core of our nature, but the leftovers from our sinful nature that's been, uh, is in the process of being completely eradicated. Um, so it's not appropriate to say that a, a believer, a true believer, has a sinful nature. It has kind of the leftovers, Paul calls it, the, it still resides in our members. It's almost as if you took the, 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 um, the main cancerous growth out, and in that sense, the cancer has been healed, but there's some free cells still flowing out there that still need to be dealt with in, in sanctification. Anything else? Yes? Oh, we were gone last week, so I don't, you don't need to rehash it, but you have two pa- the Ezekiel passage about the new covenant. Yes. So is it the position that the new covenant promises aren't exclusively to New Testament believers? That's correct. The Bible also has, often has covenants being officially stated by the benefits already being present prior to their statement. So, uh, for example, organized worship started with Abraham, officially, with the Abrahamic covenant. And yet, all the way from Genesis 4, people are calling the name of the Lord, which is language of worship there as well. Anything else? Tanya. The same thing, yes. And, and sometimes mind is used synonymous uh, to that as well, right? Um, the promise is a new heart. Nature is a more theological um, word um, there. All right. Okay, so this is all review so far. We, the, to, for today, we're going to take a look at repentance unto life and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, we're looking at a logical sequence, not a time sequence. I'm not saying that this happened and then sometime later this happened and then sometime later this happened and then sometime... It may be the case. Or it may be that a lot of these things are happening at the same time, but as when we talk about logically, that's the logical order that these things happen. So, um, the uh, repentance unto life and faith in Jesus Christ do follow chronologically regeneration. Everything other than election will follow chronologically regeneration. That has to happen first before any of these things happen. Okay? 
And these two steps could uh, be des- uh, used to describe a person's conversion, uh, a, a fruit of regeneration from the human uh, perspective. Uh, these two steps are also synergistic. Effectual calling and regeneration are monergistic. God does everything, we do nothing. Uh, and, and in this one, man and God work together, though ultimately the entire order of salvation is the result of God's grace and thus monergistic is God working. But our experience here, while in regeneration, is all, all God, we're not acting. In repentance, we are acting. There's some things we're doing, still the result of God's grace, but we're doing some things here. And the definition of repentance of life is this. Repentance unto life is that initial radical and conscious change of opinion, so the intellect, feeling, that's your emotions, and purpose, that's your will, with respect to God, ourselves, sin, and righteousness. So, a change in intellect, emotions, and will. What are, now these three things dis- describe what? Yeah, so these are the three elements of personhood. So it, it, repentance affects every element of who make, what makes you a person. Your volition, that's your will, your you know, emotions, and also your mind, your intellect. And in repentance unto life, we acknowledge that we are sinners and that our sins entail personal guilt, defilement, and helplessness before God. Repentance unto life happens once in our lives. Is that first repentance when we come to faith in, before we come to faith in Jesus Christ. In, in it, we sorrow with a godly sorrow for the sins we have committed against the holy and just God. And we, in it, we resolve to seek pardon and cleansing from God though the, through the blood of Jesus Christ, which alone satisfies the offended, the, the offended God. In essence, if it helps you think, repentance unto life is repenting of being a sinner. Uh, some people might, oh man, I have to repent of every sin I've ever committed prior to coming to faith in Jesus Christ. That's not what the Bible calls it. It calls us to repent of sin. We don't have to enumerate necessarily all of them. It's covered here. It's in a sense a repentance of being a sinner because that your nature has been changed. That's no longer your classification in, in the Bible. <clears throat> Any questions before we continue? Is it different for covenant children? No. No, uh, it, it, this is the same for anyone that's going to come to Jesus Christ. Um, though a covenant child may not be able to pinpoint when this happened. But if they are truly in Christ, this happened to them at some point. Does it make sense? Okay. We've been trained that the, uh, the, the only um, conversion that counts is the one where you're really bad and you killed a bunch of people, you know, drugs, right? And then you came to know Jesus. If you don't have that sort of experience and you can't not date, when that happened, then you must not be regenerate or saved. That's not the teaching of the Bible. It's a Puritan, New England Puritan influence that we've had in, in this country, alongside with the Dutch influence that we've had. There was is a funny pr- partnership because that was accentuated in the revivalist, somewhat Armenian uh, push to decision making. That if you couldn't date at a time when you made a decision, uh, then you're not saved. But the Puritans in New England had the same sort of uh, belief as well.
Anything else? Scott. I actually had someone use that against me from the text. Um, he who is forgiven much loves much. Mm -hmm. And he told me that he loved God more than I did because he was forgiven of more sins than I was. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> According to scriptures, we all is the greater sinner we know. Right? Matthew 7 says that. So, okay. It's accurate in that sense, right? So, okay. All right, so an important thing to remember is that repentance unto life is not reformation of life before believing in Jesus. Repentance unto life is not change your life so that your life is conforming, conforms to the scriptures before you place your faith in Jesus. Uh, it, it acknowledges our inability to reform our lives. That's what repentance unto life does. It says we can't do this. That's what it's doing. It's not necessarily the cessation of doing a particular sin either. You know, we've had testimonies heard people say, you know, I was a drug addict. The moment I came to faith, I was able to let it go. I had no temptation with it anymore. And that's great. But there are other times where somebody comes to genuine faith in Jesus Christ. They truly repent of being a sinner. And yet they struggle with that sin. Right? So repentance to life is not necessarily the cessation of doing a particular sin immediately when that happens. <clears throat> now concerning sin, repentance unto life is believing and feeling toward our sin as God says and feels toward our sin. That's what repentance is, is believing and feeling toward our sin the way that God believes and feels towards, or says and feels toward our sin, which, you know, part of repentance is confession. In confession, homologeo is, means saying the same thing. So repentance is saying the same thing about our sins as God, through the Bible, says about our sins there. Any questions before we continue? All right, so repentance unto life is a necessary part of the proclamation of the gospel along with faith in Jesus Christ. If we're going to seriously proclaim the gospel, we have to call people to repent. You're not proclaiming the gospel if you're not calling people to repent. You might be telling them what Jesus has done for sin and so on, but part of the proclamation of the gospel is calling people to repentance. Repentance unto life is the basic message of Jesus preaching the Gospels. Remember, what is the very first sermon recorded? It's very short. Repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Just repent. It's repent for the kingdom of, God, of heaven is at hand. Very short to the point. We see that in Mark, Matthew 4, verse 17. Or in Matthew 9, 10-13, where Jesus says, well, Matthew tells us this, Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... <clears throat> But go and learn what this means, I desire mercy and sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He says, this is why I'm here. I'm here to call sinners to repentance. So you cannot have a proclamation of the gospel if you don't call people to repentance. If you don't do that, you have just a nice talk with somebody. Right? And repentance unto life is also partly, also partly summarizes Paul's preaching. As he is there on that beach in Miletus talking to 
the Ephesian elders, as he thinks he's about to die, he pours out his heart to them and says, this is what I did. I went from house to house. I publicly testified of Jesus. And this was the content of my testi- what I was testifying, repentance toward God. That's what I was calling everybody, repentance toward God. It was also a center. Oh, when, when it's not there, you guys have to tell me that's not there. I get excited sometimes. I get ahead of, of uh, my points here. Uh, this was also a central part of the preaching of the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah says that the wicked forsake his way, and then a righteous man his thoughts. It's part of the proclamation of the gospel under the prophets. <clears throat> so, if we're serious about proclaiming the gospel, we need to call people to repentance. Any questions on that? And repentance unto life is the result of Christ's work of redemption and is produced by regeneration. Only those who have been born again will repent. Jesus teaches that in, Matthew, in Luke 24. He says, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead in the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and um, you are witness of these things. That's why Christ came, so repentance could be preached. Peter says the same thing to the Pharisees who arrested him. That that has to happen there too. And Paul says that we present the gospel and we argue with people who are not believing, hoping that they'll come to repentance, that God will grant them repentance. And how does God grant them repentance? Through the new birth. So, this all being true, it is a grievous sin for a minister of the gospel not to call people to repent of sin. For a minister of the gospel to never call people to repent of sin, the gospel has departed that ministry. So that's something that you and I have to keep in, in mind. Any questions? So he said we're talking about repentance unto life, but also faith in Jesus Christ, which is the other side of the coin. <clears throat> this is really the second part of what Paul says was the summary of his preaching. Right there at the end, he says that he went from house to house and publicly, with tears in his eyes, preaching repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And this faith in, in Jesus is a saving faith, and it is a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8 9 says that. You see the word that there is, is um, underlined? No, it's not. Just in my notes there. But it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, that there refers back to both the, the entirety of that first clause. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, that concept is not of yourselves. So the grace and the faith are not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Are we okay with that? All right. Saving faith consists of three elements. There's three parts of saving faith. Again, they're happening at the same time. I'm dividing them just for the the sake of, of our studying Knowledge. Faith always involves knowledge. Um, I think it was Kierkegaard that came up with the idea of faith being a leap in the dark. 
uh, Soren Kierkegaard, the, 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 the Scandinavian uh, Christian philosopher, sounds great, just not, it's not what the Bible teaches. Our faith is reasonable. Our faith is based on, on, on knowledge. I put the Latin word because it might come across it if you read some theological text. That, that's that one aspect of faith. One must know the gospel. That's what Paul says in um, Romans 10, 16 and 17. He says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then, remember how the rest of this verse goes? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Earlier in, the, in Romans 10, Paul says, how, how can they hear without a preacher? So knowledge is, is one component of saving faith. The second one, well, <clears throat> you can go to Hebrews eleven six to talk about knowledge as well, or John 8, 24, where Jesus says, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am He will die in your sins. So if you don't believe certain certain truths about Christ, you don't have saving faith. So saving faith starts with knowing the gospel. And secondly, it starts with assent to that knowledge. It's just not knowing some facts. You have to assent to that. The intellectual or cognitive conviction that the knowledge one has acquired about Christ is indeed factually true in that the provisions of the gospel correspond exactly to one's actual, not just felt, needs. So you hear the gospel, so you know the gospel. That's the first part of faith. The second part is, you assent to it. Okay, this is true, and that's what I need. But even then, you haven't given yourself to the gospel. Because you say, yeah, I know that I need, I need that, but you know what, that's not for now, or I'm just going to go do something else, and so on. And it comes the third thing, the third, third part of faith, which is trust. So assent is cognition passing to conviction, and trust is conviction passing to confidence. Not only do I assent that these things are true and are true of me, I embrace them as mine. I trust in what's being said in the gospel. Robert Raymond, who is a, a, a well, he's with the Lord now, but a, a very helpful Southern theologian uh, of modern times, he says, it is particularly this third act as the sinner cognitively, effectively, and volitionally transfers all reliance for pardon, righteousness, and cleansing away from himself and his own resources in complete and total abandonment to Christ, whom he joyfully receives and upon whom alone he rests entirely for his salvation. So as, as, as the gospel goes through these three th- phases in our, in our mind, is when these three things are in place that we have faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ. It's interesting, in 2 Timothy 2, 12, Paul tells Timothy this, he says, For this reason I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And what's the next thing? And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him unto that day. There's a persuasion, there's, the, there's that trust that is in, in there. It's interesting that in the original, it's not up there, in, in the original language. So <clears throat> I put little marks on my notes, the, the pink marks. The, so for sometimes I forget to let. So that one does not have a pink mark. Uh, <clears throat> the word persuaded here is the same word for, for believe with a different ending. So being persuaded and believe are related. 
One doesn't exist without um, the other. It's not a leap in the dark. The Christian faith is not a leap in the dark. <clears throat> Questions before we continue? Is agree the same as assent? Yes. Nick. So, uh, with regard to the knowledge part, thief on the cross seems like he didn't know that much, but he had saved faith. So there's actually, when you think about like theology and doctrine and how much there's study, it's comparatively little that is essential. Is that correct? Maybe. We don't know what he believed. We forget that, uh, well, he was likely a Jew, right? Because he's being crucified, so he's not a Roman. Because of where he is in the country, in, in the world, he's likely a Jew who grew up going to synagogue, who had a knowledge of the Old Testament. You know, so he's not starting afresh. The first time he heard about Jesus wasn't on the cross. The first time he heard about God and his word wasn't on the cross. Maybe he already had Isaiah 53 memorized from his Hebrew school days and so on. So you have to remember that that first generation wasn't as naive or non-knowledgeable as somebody who is completely outside of the church. So um, those things have to be in mind. And we really don't know how much he knew or how much he had been, uh, the Lord had been working in his heart. All that we witness is that third, all that we witness is that third element of faith. The trust. That's all that we witness in the Gospels, nothing else. So we have to be careful not to make that the standard, right? Because Romans 10 is a, a didactic portion, not a narrative, and does say that there's a few more things that we need to, to assent to and trust in order to, to be saved. Isaiah. Kind of bouncing off what Nick said, how does that affect, or how does this work with elect infants? You have to go back and listen to last week's sermon, or not sermon, um, Sunday school last week. Okay, did. Talk about that. Um, uh, our confession says, elect the emphasis, die in emphasis, you know, go to heaven, which is not saying much, right? Because they don't know. Um, but in a nutshell, I do think that the general teaching of the scriptures, the leaning of the scriptures, that the children of believers who die in infancy will go to, to heaven. But people only go to heaven through the work of Jesus Christ. Somehow God is going to regenerate that child, give that child faith, Impute the righteousness of Jesus Christ to that, to that child. Does it make sense? Yeah. Okay. Anything else? All right. <clears throat> Saving faith is the result of regeneration. We saw that repentance to life is the result of regeneration. Saving faith is the result of regeneration. I do have a pink mark next to this one. Acts 16, 14. Uh, this is Paul or Luke telling us about Lydia. And it says this, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. Remember, that's language of regeneration. And because the Lord opened her heart, what happened? She heeded the things that Paul had to say. So faith follows regeneration. In uh, Philippians 1.29, Paul says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. It's been granted. Prior to the believing, it's been granted to you. That's language of regeneration there as well. Now, one last thing, and I want you to grab your Bibles, is this. Saving faith is diametrically opposed to law-keeping. 
even though God saves us because of our faith, saving faith is not law-keeping, is not meritorious. There's nothing that in it that earn us, earns us any merit before God. Look at uh, Romans chapter 3. And we already saw that when you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and saw that faith itself is a gift of God. So if it's given to us, it's not our merit. And we can't boast. That's exactly the point that Paul makes in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that we can't boast of that faith because it was a gift. But if you look in Romans chapter 3, verse 20 through 22, <clears throat> Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by, faith, by the law is the knowledge of sin. I don't know how more categorical Paul can be. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. And deeds of the law is any, any desire, any, any, any um, effort to please God by obeying some set, sort of uh, list or, uh, of requirements. And Paul continues in verse 21, because when verse 20 ends, it, Paul leaves us all in a pretty miserable place, right? Pretty hopeless place. And then there's the but God in verse 21. But now, not but God, but but now, the righteousness of God apart from the law, so apart from the law, is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Do you see how he makes there a categorical difference between obedience to the law and faith in Jesus Christ? They're, they're completely different. They're the, the exact opposite of, on the spectrum uh, of, before God. Look at verse 28 of the same chapter. Paul says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. That's it. You say, oh, but there doesn't, the, the word alone is not there. It's justified by faith alone. alone is not, well, but it's apart from the deeds of the law. So what else is there? But if it's not alone, by faith. Look at chapter 4, verse 5. <clears throat> but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. See the, the, the comparison here, the contrast? He who does not work, but believes. Look at verse 14 of the same chapter. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect. Again, the contrast between work, law, and faith. So saving faith is diametrically opposed to law-keeping. And you see that this is just a few examples from the first just two chapters in Romans we could go through, as I had here, a list of about 20 verses in Romans alone that shows that that is the case. Any questions? All right, so what's the point? The point is this. God alone saves, and He saves through the proclamation of the gospel. His salvation starts with the new birth and concludes with our glorification. So we've seen that He effectively calls his people, those he calls, he gives a new birth, he regenerates. 
those that are born again will respond with repentance unto life. That's that first repentance, that legal um, repentance where we, we turn away from our sins and turn to, and then we turn to Christ with, with saving faith. Any questions before we close? All right, so let's pray them. Father in heaven, thank you that you're the one who saves us in Jesus Christ. Thank you that it's not our work because none of them are good enough for that. We pray that we would have complete confidence in Christ as our Savior and that we would not turn to our own doing in order to justify us before you. For asking in Jesus' name, amen.